Resiliency Within with host Elaine Miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit traumaresourceinstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine Miller-Karras. Welcome to Resiliency Within. I am so happy to tell you that we have Dr. Michael Sapp with us again. This is actually the second of two-part series uh, on the 6th of March. Um, Michael interviewed me about my new book that's coming out actually tomorrow called Building Resilience to Trauma, the Trauma and Community Resiliency Models. It's really a collaborative book. And uh, Mike and I worked together on chapter two of the book. Um, which has to do with, actually, I think it's chapter five now, but it has to do with neuroscience and the neuroscience behind both of the models, behind the the trauma resiliency model and the community resiliency model. But I want to start out by saying, Michael, when I was talking last last time, um, I wanted to make clear that Pandora's father was Zeus. Elpis is the name for hope. I think I mixed that up last time. Got it. But uh, it's so, so for those of you that did not listen to the March 6th show, one of the things that um, really has prompted me to be, I guess, a, a leader in the area of trauma and bringing hopeful interventions like the trauma and community resiliency models to the world community has really been based upon some ancient teachings. So in the, the Pandora's jar, actually, it wasn't a box, is that she was the daughter of Zeus and she was curious. So she opened up the jar and all the troubles and worries of the world and all the storms of life were were released into the entire universe and planet. And so, of course, that's a story about, mm, I don't know, but I think curiosity is important. But when that was released on the bottom of the jar was Elpis and Elpis stands for hope. And so I think that's the part of the story that gets left out. Mm-hmm. And I think, Mike, you and I have worked very diligently over the last number of years together to um, really have the message of hope that any of you who are suffering from trauma and saying, there's not really any way I can ever get better. We want you to know that we believe that you can. So Dr. Michael Sapp is a psychologist. And many, many years ago, he actually shared office space with me. So I had been in the building for many years and I see this very tall, young, lanky psychologist come into um, the building and we started talking. Wet behind his ears. Wet behind his ears. Yeah. You were very, you had come from New York and you were ready to start your practice in Claremont, <laughs> California, where we were both together. Um, but so I was, you know, like very excited about thinking about the biology of the human nervous system and how important it was to pay attention to the biology and how that also was another segue, another way that we could help people heal that had experienced very traumatic and very stressful life events. So I started talking to Mike about, <laughs> wasn't that true, Mike? I started talking to you about the model. And yeah. um, and so, you know, I could see that he was a cognitive-based model, um, yeah. uh, cognitive-based psychologist at that time. So I have to say that when I first started talking to you about this, I thought, well, 
I wonder if he thinks I'm a little bit woo-woo. I, I don't know. What, what were you thinking about me? Here you're coming back from New York. You're you know, psychologist in California, and I'm talking to you about the body and trauma. What, what, were, what Sure, were you sure. You know, I think it's funny because I, I was – uh, a lot of my training was very eclectic, to be honest. And so I had uh, being trained in New York, there's quite a bit of psychodynamic uh, pockets in, in the city there. And so I had a, a fair amount of psychodynamic training, a fair amount of cognitive based, behavioral, uh, emotionally focused therapy. So a lot of it was very insight oriented. And I you know, the only time in my training we talked about the body or about the biology even was typically around medicine, psychopharmacology. You know, you'd have to take a class on psychopharmacology or talking about some of the, what are some of the, the common medical conditions that might mask or might be a result of, you know, uh, depression or anxiety or vice versa, you know, what are some of the physical ailments that could present looking like, you know, so it, that was really my, my main exposure to how neuroscience could enter into the therapy room with me. Right. So I didn't, you know, so a lot of my therapeutic interventions at that point did not incorporate the body other than, oh, maybe this person might benefit from uh, a referral to a psychiatrist. But that was it. Well, so I remember, I think it was about 2008 or 2009 that you came to talk to me about yeah. a client that you yep. were having, you know, you're kind of hitting a wall. Yes. And how can I help her? So yes. do you want to say a little bit about Absolutely. that started shifting your perspective, I believe. Uh, it, 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 it shifted it monumentally um, because I had been working with this client for probably about a year and I knew what I was doing just wasn't working. It, it just, um, it was very clear to me. Uh, among her many symptoms, one of them especially uh, troubling for me was uh, on average, she was sleeping about two to three hours a night. And that's just awful on so many levels, right? Uh, among other, other symptoms. So uh, I remember at the time learning uh, early on that she had a significant uh, she had been uh, physically assaulted when she was a teenager. And at this point, she was probably mid-30s, early 40s. And I remember at the time thinking, well, <laughs> you know, I'm not a trauma therapist. I just work with anxiety and depression. And, you know, what was me if I thought I could deal with trauma, right? Whereas now I, I clearly have a, a different way of thinking about clients that we all, we are all are all trauma therapists, whether we want to admit it or not, we're whoever walks in our room, we're working with that in some Well, I noticed way. that there was a little bit of a smile um, for those of, I'm, I can see him on my Zoom account, that there was a little smile on Dr. Sapp's face and a, kind of a little, I think that there was a, a giggle because oh, yeah. I think it's really important for any of you that are thinking about becoming psychotherapists, that if you don't want to be, if you don't want to deal with trauma, you probably need to find a different profession because yes. the, the underpinnings of yeah. many of, of the sufferings that come to psychotherapy offices have to do with trauma. Yes. So go ahead, Mike. So this, this, this young woman was suffering. Yeah. And, and so given that, that singular event, which we know that there, it's often not just a singular event, but that was the one event that she shared with me. And I thought, you know what, I know Elaine works with trauma. Maybe I should have her go see Elaine. And so I was going to refer my client out to you. And so I talked with my client. My client said, no, I don't want to go see anybody else. I trust you. And so I said, well, what if I just went with you 
and I would sit in the corner of the room. Uh, I would be there present with you as Elaine works with you. And she, she agreed to that. So that's what we did. And so I remember the first session, and I know I've told you this, I remember the first session watching you do your work thinking, I have no reference point for this. This is so strange. Why is she asking about sensation? What is that? I have no, I, I just didn't know, you know? And so I was like, well, huh. And I remember asking my client afterwards saying, well, do you want to go back? And she said, sure. Okay. I'll do what my client wants and let's go back. You know, and just so that, you know, the listeners know. So when I would meet someone for the first time and I'm bringing it in a um, a a model that's based on the biology of the human nervous system, I would do a little brief um, introduction into the autonomic nervous system. So I would talk about the sensations of when we get into what we call hyper arousal, which we call the high zone in the trauma resiliency model and the community resiliency models. And then we pause. um, And I also tell them about the break of the nervous system. And that is the parasympathetic. And so then I would talk about what are the sensations connected to each one, which we call, and we also know we have something, a break, but we also can go in the low zone. We we feel numb. We don't feel anything. But I'm trying to help people understand that every thought, feeling, and belief has a corresponding sensation in the body. Even if we say, oh, I don't know if if I sense anything, not sensing anything is a sensation. So I just want people to know that, you know, it could be numb, it could be the lack thereof. So, so go ahead. So then what happened next? Yeah. So you were bringing the body into the conversation in ways that I had never seen before in any of my training. And so it, it just, it felt um, like, like I didn't have a a template from which to understand what was going on. And and I really didn't. And so uh, we came in and I think it was by the third time we came in and you had asked a simple question, I think something like, you know, well, how was this week for you? Just kind of as initiating a session. And, and my client said, well, uh, last week I slept a, a few nights. I, I got about six to eight hours of sleep. And I think my mouth must have dropped. I don't know. I just go, what is going on here? What am I missing here that I to, to see within three sessions uh, some movement in ways that I hadn't seen after seeing her for a year. And I started, that's when I started asking Elaine a lot of questions, you know, and that's when I think Elaine, uh, you started talking to me about, well, here's the neuroscience for this. Here's the neuroscience for that. Here's the neuros, you know, and once you, cause I, I knew enough of the neuroscience. I like neuroscience. That's, um, a joke with people that's somewhat my love language. I can, I love knowing how the brain operates and the brain and body operate. And so when you started making those connections with the neuroscience as to why you would ask this, why you focus on that, that's where it started to open up for me. That was the shift for me is, oh, okay. I get the neuroscience. That makes sense based on the neuroscience. Why you asked that? Oh, that made sense. And if I can say is that, so this particular person you know, had been sexually assaulted. So anytime she would try to sleep and she would go into a relaxation response, it's her body would go into hyper arousal. Right. And so their heart would start beating fast. And hyper arousal, sympathetic hyper arousal isn't meant for sleep. It's meant for action. Yeah. It's meant for getting away from the threat. So her body was so patterned because of the sexual assault to react in that way. She wasn't sleeping very much. So when I taught her some of those simple skills of how to put the brake on her nervous system and sense her parasympathetic nervous system and how she could very simply, by thinking about some of the resources of her life, um, the things that uplift her, that brings her calm and peace, she then had something she could do on her own 
when she was getting ready to go to sleep, when she could feel that surge of adrenaline meant for action, and she could learn to quiet her own nervous system. So we're talking about the stress response, and we're talking about how to work with the stress response to help people have in the palms of their hand a way to put the brake on. And that's was really, it, it started changing her life. Because oh, if we yeah. we're sleeping, we can't, we're not resting enough, and we're right. not able to do our activities of daily living in the way that we'd like to. And oftentimes it leads to either greater anxiety or depression. So, so, so then what happened next, Mike? So then you started seeing the neuroscience underpinnings of what we, I had um, been doing with your client. Right. And, and to be able to, to see a modality, an intervention that was based on the application of what we know about the biological response to stress in the nervous system, that, that was an anchor point for me. That made so much sense to me. And that's when I started, I think that's when I took the, my, the very first training in the trauma resiliency model uh, back in 2010, I believe it was, was my first training. And, um, and then my goodness, I just, I saw as I went through the trainings, as I learned how to, to utilize the skills, how I learned learning how to implement the skills with my clients and then seeing the efficacy, seeing the efficiency of the skills. And it just, I, I will say this, I say this for to anybody that will listen, I saw it transform my practice with my clients. And then on top of that, because of the wellness skills, because those wellness skills are built into the trauma resiliency model, and that's of course the six wellness skills uh, are the community resiliency model. I started using those skills for my own self-care and I started noticing my burnout start to decrease significantly. But again, it's those skills that are based on biology of the nervous system response of stress. That's, it was something that was very practical and very, um, I don't want to say simple because it, they're, they're simple to learn, but they're, they're, they're very rich and deeply anchored in neuroscience and biology that I think it is. Um, yeah, it, it just, it just transformed my practice transformed how I cared for myself in the work. Well, that I I think I, that's something that I just want to kind of highlight as you're talking, because as you're learning the wellness skills and you're teaching them to your clients, you also are teaching, you're also reminding yourself of them. Yeah. And all of us, no matter how many degrees we have, can get bumped out of our, what we call the zone of well-being, the resilient zone, and we can go into the high or low zones. And so when we learn to to read our nervous system, it really can change our lives. Because then we have, again, in the palms of our hand, the tools to be able to do this. Um, and I think this is important for all of us in the, in the world. And I think that's why I think we're dedicated, Mike and I. Mike is now the, um, the chief executive officer of the Trauma Resource Institute. I turned over the reins. Um, I left my executive directorship in 2020. And um, he was so, I was so grateful that Mike was ready to take on the reins. He'd been the associate director for many years. And so now he's leading the organization. So, and I also would like to say to all of you that the Trauma Resource Institute also sponsors this program. And we do a lot of work um, also around the world in humanitarian ways that are not funded. So if anyone wants to give a donation to try, they go to traumaresourceinstitute.com and you can give a donation. Right now we have humanitarian work going on with Ukraine and with Rwanda. Um, and we've, we're very proud of the humanitarian work that we do. And there's things that, as we know, that happen in the world all the time that call us to uh, respond to the natural disasters that happen. So, you know, Mike, 
you know, when we, when I wrote the first book, um, really in 2014, and I said, Mike, would you write this chapter on neuroscience with me? You'd learn so much about the neuroscience. And so I know that you did a deep dive into the neuroscience at that time. And now that the book is coming out tomorrow, that people can go to amazon.com or to Rutledge and make sure you get the second edition because the first edition is still out there, of course, um, is published in 2023. Is that what Can you tell us a little bit about some of the neuroscience underpinnings of both models, the trauma resiliency model, Mm -hmm. which is directed towards mental health professionals, and the community resiliency model, which really we're trying to teach the world. And we also train people to be teachers of that model that we call the natural leaders. I think that's it. I think that's the, if I could start there, I think that's the piece that I I find most uh, I don't know if satisfying or important or what, but I, I, I love that we work really hard to try to take something as complex as neuroscience and uh, communicate it and teach about it in a way that is very user-friendly. It doesn't mean we dumb it down. It doesn't mean we take something and make it inaccurate so that people can understand it a little bit better. It's we use, we try to frame it and use metaphors and, and talk about it in ways that is, I, I hope, easily accessible. And I think that's the piece that I find really, really important because um, there's so much. I mean, our, our brain and our body, our nervous system, it's such a complex thing. It's just so complex, and when we uh, and when we can talk about that complexity, and we can boil it down into and focus on just really important parts of that complexity, it can really help people understand, myself included, help people understand why do we respond in times of stress the way we do? Why do we get stuck sometimes feeling X, Y, and Z when I feel like I have no control? I feel like I can't get myself out of it. No matter how many times I try to think my way out of it, no matter how many times I try to feel my way out of it, I still feel stuck. That's the piece that I find so um, encouraging is that there are so many things that happen in our life that you know we're not just thinking and feeling beings. We're thinking, feeling, and sensing. We, we have thoughts, we have feelings, and we have a body. And, and being able to welcome the body to the conversation when working in this way is so important, not only in a, uh, in a therapeutic way, but also in a community way. Well, can you say a little bit more about that? What do you mean about not only in a personal way, but in a, com- in, in a community way? Sure. Because I think when I'm sitting in and uh, doing therapy with a client, to be able to talk about the neuroscience, to be able to provide some uh, basic understanding about the neuroscience, I have seen on a one-on-one uh, interaction where they they kind of let up and they kind of go, oh, that may be why I do X, Y, and Z. Yes. And so, let's work on these skills to see if we can turn down the volume of that distress. Well, so Mike, could you give us a little bit of an idea of what that would look like? So, there's sure. you know, people that might be listening going, well, I don't know what he's talking about. Well, what is it about the neuroscience that may cause my stress or traumatic reactions? Sure. Well, you already spoke to the autonomic nervous system, right? The the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system, often I'll refer to it as the accelerator and the brake. Um, and so when we're when I'm trying to teach about the resilient zone, I'm trying to teach about being bumped out of the resilient zone, which you already referenced earlier. I can speak to the fact that, you know, we need both systems to operate and and engage our, our activities of daily living. And when we get bumped out, our nervous system is always working for our survival. And so I may even talk about uh, the brain and how the brain operates when we perceive a threat, 
right? When we perceive a threat, there's a part of the brain called the amygdala, and that amygdala senses the threat. It identifies a threat and then sends signals to other parts of our, our uh, brain and our nervous system to, to put us in survival mode. And when we're in survival mode, the parts of our brain that are are responsible for thinking and making decisions and and trying to make moral decisions often goes offline. They are less active so that we're in survival mode where we may do things that we don't normally do or we wouldn't normally want to do if we weren't under threat. Well, what if that threat is over? Why would we still react that way? Right. So if we're stuck there and there's something in our body and our nervous system that hasn't been able to communicate back to our other parts of the nervous system that the threat is over, we're almost stuck in this, this feedback loop. And so then can we use these skills? Can we use what we know about our nervous system to communicate to the parts of the brain and the, and the network or the survival, or sorry, the, the nervous system that are responsible for survival? Can we communicate in such a way that helps that part of the nervous system understand, oh, we're no longer under threat. But that, you know, again, pulling the neuroscience, we talk about a survival network in the brain, the brain stem, which is at the, it's where the spinal cord comes into the brain. That survival network is really uh, responsible for that, our fight flight response, our survival responses. And when we're in a survival response, that part of the brain doesn't listen to verbal command. Oftentimes when I talk in this way, I will say, you know, have you ever been told to, to calm down when you're really uh, nervous or really uh, anxious and, or angry? Well, being told verbally to calm down just doesn't work because that part of the brain that's active, that survival network is active. That doesn't respond to verbal command, but it, it responds to sensation. So if we can pay attention to sensations that tell us that the threat is over, whatever that may be. Maybe we employ a help now skill and maybe I look around the room and name six colors or I, I, you know, maybe I do some grounding. I feel my, my feet on the floor or my hands making contact with a, a, a surface, or maybe I pull in uh, one of our skills, which is resourcing, where it's something that historically has made me feel some sense of peace or safe, uh, feeling safer or strength or joy. And if I can pull that into my, to my mind's eye and then notice the sensory experience as I do that, those sensations are what communicate to that part of the brain that only really listens to and responds to sensation that the threat is over. Then we might come back in our resilience zone. Then we might find that our nervous system re-regulates and we don't feel as anxious or stuck. Well, I think sometimes I've seen that if, if someone says calm down, it actually has the opposite reaction. Sometimes yeah. people are upset. It might be better to say, let's go for a walk. Right. Because then you're moving the large muscles of your body, and that actually can help downregulate your nervous system if you are in the high zone, like angry and irritated, or if you're just feeling down and depressed, it sometimes can give you, it's kind of like putting, you know, like um, what is bumper cables on uh, on a dead battery. It's like yeah. getting you a little bit of juice so you may have some more energy to be able to do whatever you need to do to do those activities of daily living. Yeah. So having this understanding, I, I know if you can maybe um, talk a little bit to this, you know, I've heard people say, oh, I just thought I was broken. Yeah. So, so I guess I'm not broken. So what that means that, I'm I'm reacting like other people. Yeah, see this is this to me this is the beauty of neuroscience. This is the beauty of biology is that we can say to that person uh, this is your nervous system working for your protection. When your nervous system senses a threat real or imagined, it works for our survival. It works for our protection and to me that's an elegant design. 
thank goodness our nervous system works for our protection. And so thank goodness we have that part of the brain, the, the amygdala that says there's a threat. I'm sensing a threat somewhere because then it's going to work for our protection. And, and we talk about, so another neuroscience nugget, we talk about that amygdala having a negativity bias, that that part of the brain, that, that smoke alarm, that fire detector has a negativity bias. So that when I'm getting ready to cross the street and I look up and I miss, maybe I'm, I'm too involved with my phone or whatever, and I miss a beautiful sunset, that, that's not life-threatening. So if I miss a beautiful sunset, yes, I may be worse off as a person because I miss something so beautiful, but it's not life-threatening. But if I walk out of that street and I miss the, the possibility of an oncoming car, that's life-threatening. So our, our amygdala is working for our survival. Our nervous system is working for our survival. It just sometimes feels inconvenient at times because it feels like we may get stuck. But that's the beauty to me is that I can tell people that biology and people go, oh, just like you said, oh, so I'm not broken. So yeah. that's, that's I normal. I get unstuck because I think that yes. sometimes people have said to me, oh, my mother, my father, my husband, my, you know, my wife, whatever, my family, they say, aren't you over that yet? That happened 10 years ago. Why are you still thinking about it? Yeah. So what you're saying is we're designed to think about it and to take action if there are something that's reminders, reminders of those yeah. traumas that we may have had as, as, as a child, as an adult. Um, it could be a smell. It could be a sound. It could be someone who looks like the perpetrator of a crime. And all of a sudden, our amygdala is going, get the heck out of there. You're in right. danger. It may not make any sense to the person, but it makes sense to the biology of the human nervous system that from what you're saying is designed to keep us alive. Even and it's based over. Exactly. Even when the threat is over, because it's based on experience. It's almost like the nervous system when it sees new information that even approximates it, right? So if we had an event, let's say uh, a car accident, and every time we come to an intersection, let's say it was at an intersection, and every time we come to an intersection, we start to feel uneasy. Well, that's because last time data came into our nervous system that looked very similar, our nervous system is remembering it and going, wait, last time that information was coming into our nervous system, it didn't end well for us. And so it, it gets us on edge. It gets us ready. It gets, you know, so in that way, it just generalizes from, from maybe a singular event or multiple events to new events in such a way that it primes the nervous system to take action for protection. And also it takes action quickly because we don't have time to say, hmm, gee, I wonder what I should do there. There is a gorilla coming in that looks a little threatening. Right. Maybe I'll give him something to eat and it will be okay. Right. In that meantime, if you don't, you know, maybe it is a friendly gorilla, but maybe it's not. Right. You, you could you could be hurt. Right. So, and I'm not, nothing against gorillas. Um, <laughs> right, right. You know, right. You know what I'm saying. So, um, anyway, you know, we're going to talk more about this. I think, you know, Mike, uh, when we come back from the break, I'd like to see if you could tell us a little bit what is in chapter five. You know, what, why would want, somebody want to pick up um, the second edition of the book? And I know that you and I have talked a lot about why it was important to get the second edition out because so much had happened between writing the book in 2014 and now 2023. It's almost like, oh my gosh, it's almost 10 years. Um, I can't believe that, but that's true. Um, and there's so much that's happened with people who have read the book. And maybe we can talk a little bit too about our dear friend, Leslie Carroll and what we mm -hmm. learned. I think we both learned a lot then. Oh my gosh, you're here because you read the book. Anyway. Yeah. But I think there's things that we've learned as a result of that. And I'm hoping that you'll talk a little bit about 
some of the resiliency circuits too of, you know, not only are we designed to remember the the negative things that have happened to us, but we also can remember those positive, highly charged emotional experiences that also can be templates that we can shift our awareness to that can help us. So we'll be back in, we'll be back in just a couple of minutes and we will continue this conversation with Dr. Michael Sapp. We'll talk more about the neuroscience behind the community resiliency model and the trauma resiliency resiliency model. And, you know, we're talking about trauma and stress and how you can be helped and to remember there is always help. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine Miller Karras book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at Elaine at ResiliencyWithin.com. Elaine Miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life. Your health. Your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine Miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. I'm here with Dr. Michael Sapp the Chief Executive Officer of the Trauma Resource Institute and a licensed psychologist. Now, Mike, I I wonder if you can maybe talk a little bit. I think you've traveled to many places around the world. I know we've been to the Philippines together. You've been to Nepal. We've been to Turkey. We've been to Great Britain. Iceland. Um, Iceland. Oh, my goodness. Iceland, yes. And, you know, what have you learned about the human condition in relationship to neuroscience? Sure. I think that's the other one of the other aspects of why I think I appreciate neuroscience and biology so much is that um, I have recognized that 
our our stress response, our biological stress response, the neuroscience be, behind our stress response is often similar is uh, regardless of where we were, we find ourselves. <clears throat> so I often will say to people, you know, our response to stress and trauma biologically uh, is relatively the same, regardless of the color of your skin, regardless of how much money you do or don't have in your bank account, no matter where you were raised, that that our our biology and response to stress is very characteristic uh, and is very similar. And I think that speaks to the human condition that we see wherever we go. And so that's where when we go into places like the Philippines, like Nepal, like Turkey, we can talk about the neuroscience. We can talk about the amygdala, the autonomic nervous system. And to be honest, when we talk about that, I have found that's when we get um, we get we get a lot of questions. We get a lot of people saying, "Oh, well, tell me more about that." Oh, that makes sense. That's why X Y. You know, that's why I did X Y and Z. And I think that can be so freeing for so many people. Going back to what you said before the break, it's almost like when someone says, "So you say I'm not broken, yeah. right?" And there can be a hunger, really, when people go, oh, my gosh, tell me more, tell me more. Absolutely. Because all of a sudden, you can actually see the light bulbs, almost like their eyes, you know, light up and say, tell me more. And I found this to be true, because I want to talk a little bit about this, too. We've been to places where there's high literacy levels, where there's low literacy levels, but that, you know, the human condition is, even if you are not able to read and write as well as someone who's gone, let's say, to the university, um, people can learn to read their nervous system. And we've seen this in many parts of the world where we've gone when people haven't had the advantage of educational systems where they've been able, let's say, to even read or write. And then I guess we can talk about kids too, because we have many children in our lives that can't read or write yet, yet we can help them learn how to start paying attention and to have you know, that body literacy that they can start to read their nervous system and understand that when they get into these particular states of distress, that they also can have ways to come back into their zone of well-being. So um, can you just say a little bit more about anything else about the international work in neuroscience that you've seen? Well, I think that's it. I think that the, sorry, I think the other thing I think about is how we talk about it, right? That it's adaptable. And and so I, I shared earlier, right? That the when the amygdala is firing, when it's sensing a threat, our our thinking network, the 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 network responsible for making really good, well thought out decisions and moral judgments is compromised. And and for good reason, like you said, right? If we sit there and try to figure out if I remembered putting my laundry in the dryer when there's a mountain lion in my room, I'm probably not going to end up in a good place, right? But we want our survival network and our our nervous system to act quickly without the the cumbersome thinking process oftentimes. So I could say all of that. And then I can say, you know, I heard, I I remember seeing something on the internet that talked about that amygdala being the barking dog and then talking about the the thinking network as the wise old owl. And when the wise old, you know, when the dog starts barking, the wise old owl flies away. But if we can help the dog to start barking or stop barking, then the wise old owl can come back and we can think more clearly. We can make better judgments, right? And so that just simple metaphor for kids depending on the parts of the world, right? Depending on the parts of the world, maybe it's not a wise old owl. Maybe it's some other animal that in their culture represents thinking or wisdom. And maybe the the alarm is something else. But I I tell you, when I when we teach in that way, that is so simple. 
it doesn't degrade neuroscience. It presents the neuroscience and and the stress re- the neuroscience of the stress response in a way that is is so easily understood. And then you start to see them share that. You know, I get I, we've heard of counts of oh, I shared that with my kid or I shared that with my students uh, in parts of the world that I just thought oh, that's just beautiful. It's just to me that's beautiful to be able to say hey this little thing here, this barking dog and the wise old owl metaphor helps explain to kids why they might behave in ways that later they come back and go, I don't know why I behave that way. Well, and I think that kind of goes to our way of thinking as well, that um, when we start thinking about the trauma information and how, when we've had a trauma, how that affects the biology of the human nervous system. And this is something that we could say, oh, I wish that wouldn't happen, but it did happen. And my body reacts this way, even though I've been trying to say, stop body, don't do that. Don't react in that way. It does anyway. But then when we bring in this information and they can understand, oh, well, it's because of my autonomic nervous system. Because I want people to understand too, when we say trauma-informed, we're talking about a paradigm shift. And the trauma-informed information the last 20 years have done that. But we're also talking about something else. It's a resiliency-informed and focused approach. And could you talk a little bit about some of the resiliency networks that are also exist in the brain. Because if we talked about trauma, we say, well, gosh, my amygdala is like hopeless. That amygdala now is like everything's a landmine. As I walk out my door, my that, that dog is barking 24-7. How can I get that right. darn dog to stop barking? So um, help, right. help us understand how we can do that. Absolutely. So, you know, we talk about that's that's often where I will bring in this is the importance of the skills that these skills and helping us come back in our resilient zone is is building new neural pathways, new, uh, you know, in, in the terms of the book, we talk about tuning and pruning that there is, you know, when we when we form new neural pathways, new neural networks, we are strengthening those neural networks, whether for the good or for the bad or for the unpleasant or the pleasant. And so if we can, you know, I often will use the metaphor when we're trying to build new neural pathways, and that's with any skills, whether it's learning a new musical instrument, learning a new language, learning a sport, learning how to type, whatever skill we're trying to learn, we're, our, our nervous system, our brain, sorry, and then the, the neurons and the brain cells that form connections with other brain cells strengthen when we continue to do that practice. And the more they strengthen, the better pronounced that skill becomes and the easier it becomes. And that's why the skills-based practice is so important. So now that being said, we also know from, is it Richard uh, Davidson and his work with the resiliency or the, 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 what he talks about these four brain circuits, the resilient circuit, the positive outlook circuit, uh, the tension circuit and the generosity circuit that when we can uh, strengthen these circuits, it actually strengthens our well-being. Right. So when we can, when, when one has a healthy and robust, this is what he says, right? When one has a healthy and robust positive outlook circuitry, uh, they're able to see and recognize the positive in others, as well as the ability to savor positive experiences. So I see that going, oh, that's a, a circuitry in the brain that we can strengthen. Well, how can we strengthen that? I see it through resourcing. One of our skills is resourcing where we can learn to savor those positive experiences that we may have had in life. And the more we can practice that, does that build that circuitry? That's what I, I'm, I'm curious about. Uh, the attention circuit, when he talks about the attention circuit, emotional well-being is linked to the ability to pay attention. 
Well, if our nervous system, if if the amygdala is constantly firing and our thinking network is offline, our ability to pay attention is compromised. So then when we practice these skills, we start to regulate, uh, the. Uh, we come back into our zone and the thinking network comes back online, it becomes easier to pay attention and to attend. And so when we can build those circuits, when we can strengthen those uh, neural pathways, well-being expands and increases. And so then maybe the amygdala doesn't uh, the, the barking dog doesn't keep barking, right? And I think that's the piece that is so wonderful is that we can strengthen our resilience. We can strengthen those networks that then increases our well-being. So when you say we can strengthen them, people are going, well, I wanna, I'm, I'm up for that. How can I strengthen my resiliency circuits so I can, I guess, override that barking dog and say, barking dog, you're going to quiet for right now. Because sometimes we want the dog to bark. Because right. it can tell us that there's a danger. So it's not like we want to get rid of the barking dog, but we want to also let the barking dog know if the threat is over, the dog no longer needs to bark. Um, can get back to your metaphor. So Yeah. And so then I then I start thinking about how we talk about memory, really, right? Oftentimes when we talk about memory, we talk about it from a perspective of uh, what we call a memory capsule when a memory capsule is popped. This idea, and it's not like we have these capsules in our brain physically, but it's, it's just an idea of how we think about memory and how memory operates within our nervous system and what we see, um, how we can comprehend some of the processes of memory is we have these memory capsules of events that when they're popped, a lot of our multi-sensory experience of that event spills out. Both- so how do they pop? So then we have what we call what we teach in our model, right? Internal reminders and external reminders. Maybe there's a sound, maybe there's a, a sight, um, a, a smell that when we encounter, it pops that memory capsule. And then all of those uh, multi-sensory cues, those sensations of distress, if it's, a, if it's a distressing memory capsule, spill out in the nervous system. And we start to, f- maybe we feel our heart rate increase. Maybe we feel muscle, our muscles tighten, or maybe our palms start to sweat. It could be any number of things that are associated with that. Like we had a big fire in our community a number of years ago, and you could just smell smoke everywhere. I noticed that if I smell smoke, I I have an immediate reaction that my body starts to tighten. And it's almost like I'm looking to say, well, where is it? Um, And I need to take action. Now, I say to myself, oh, no, that's not. That's just the barbecue next door. So all of a sudden, then my nervous system, I can say that to myself, and I may do something like, Sit, you know, feel my feet on the floor and I can, it's like zoom. I'm back to the yeah. moment. I'm not, you know, 10 years ago when there was the fire. Right. So, but that's also true for positive sensations. Cause let's say, you know, my grandma and I used to make lemonade together and we have a lemon tree in the backyard that we share with our neighbors. And I can take that lemon and I can smell that lemon. And I am in her backyard. I am like seven years old and I'm picking lemons to make lemonade. And in that moment, that seems like a pop. Is that what you're calling it? Yes, right. And then when it pops, you might, then we would ask people to, we invite people to track, meaning pay attention to sensations. When you take that smell of that lemon. Mm, I can smell it right now. (laughs) Right. And I see your hand go to your chest, right? You see all of these. And then it's, what are the sensations that you notice as you smell that lemon? And if they're pleasant or neutral, Let's dwell on those. Let's hold those for a moment. You know, I, I often will say, let's save it to the hard drive, because when we can do that, that's the building of the neural uh, the the neural networks, right? When I when you th- when you smell that lemon and you notice those pleasant sensations, the more you can spend time smelling, you know, having bringing that to mind, feeling it in your body, bring it to my feeling your body. That's the that's the tuning 
That's the neuroplasticity. That's chain. That's building strong neural networks so that then if you start to feel that distress, you might be able to bring to mind that smell of the lemon that then can override the distress you might feel because when you smell that lemon and when you bring that to mind, because you've done the the practice and it the, the sensory experiences oh that are more pleasant overrides. No, someone's someone's out there. Uh, in our cyberspace, you know, thinking, yeah. oh, what are my resources? Oh, you know, whatever it might be. And they're they're going, oh, yeah, I do feel a little bit better. Well, so, okay, that's about a lemon. How does that, how does that relate to, how does it change my life if I'm, you know, arguing with my partner or I'm frustrated because my kids are driving me crazy? How does that, how would that help? Well, I would imagine that when we get in those arguments, when we're frustrated, right, if we were to track in those moments, we would notice sensations that are more unpleasant. And again, those are neural pathways that are saying, okay, when I'm in this uh, fight or when I'm in this argument, I'm feeling it. I'm feeling the tension, the, the short, shallow breast, whatever it may be. And so if we're in the middle of that fight, if we can, you know, think of that resilient zone and if we can uh, maybe feel our feet on the ground, maybe we do some other, maybe it is about smelling that lemon in our mind's eye. All right. And that can come and we can come back into our zone enough so that we don't stay stuck out of our zone. Because if we can come back into our zone enough, we talk about when we're in our zone, we can be angry. We can be sad. We just aren't being swept away with it. We can still think clearly. And maybe we talk in a way that's different. Maybe we become a little bit uh, more focused on how do we solve the issue versus I want to win the argument. You say, I mean, like to my husband, I cannot believe you didn't take out the garbage again, but I don't right. get so angry that I like, you know, throw the garbage can at him, which would be out of my zone, which would right. not be healthy for him or for me. Right. Because I think it's important that, you know, we're trying to help people with this neuroscience really learn the differences between what it's like to be in that sympathetic hyper aroused state and what it's like to be in a parasympathetic state. This is the way we're designed. And when we pop that memory capsule of my grandmother's lemon tree and the lemons, I don't have to be holding a lemon right. to remember the scent of the lemon, which I think is important to underscore yeah. for people. Because I'll go, oh, guys, okay, the last time I felt really good, I was at the ocean, but I was on that trip to Hawaii. And I'm not going back to Hawaii for probably 10 years. So does that mean you right. can never experience these right. moments, right? right. Where right. we come back into this state of greater well-being within our body that we call the resilient zone or the zone or the okay zone, the zone of well-being. Um, but we can. I mean, I think that's important. When I when I first read Dr. Richardson's work, I said, oh, it was an amen, hallelujah moment for me because yeah. I'm going, oh, this makes so much sense. Yeah. This is why when we talk about implicit memory, memory that's oftentimes right under under our, um, our conscious awareness, but all of a sudden I smell lemon and I feel a sense of well-being. I don't- As if it's happening right now. As, as if it's happening right now. Yeah. That's actually pleasant. Thinking about my grandma who's long gone, but that's pleasant to me, right? It's not an unpleasant yeah. memory. But if that smell is connected to the smoke of the fire, that's unpleasant. Right. And Which is not bad, right? Because again, that just tells us that our, and see, this is, this is what I love about the neuroscience is as, as inconvenient as that can feel and frustrated, oh, why do I always go into that, right? It's also an indicator that our nervous system is working for our protection. It's remembering a smell that was associated with danger and it's working for our protection. And so in some ways, I, this is what I love about the neuroscience is it helps communicate to people 
I hope, an appreciation for our biology and what it's designed to do and what it's helping us do. Now we just want to fine tune it. Right. And we can lay down new pathways. And that's yes. why we, we both read uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett's book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. And I loved the, yep. the networks that she talked about in the brain. Because yep. I had always heard about, oh, well, you know, you use it or lose it. The pruning, when we don't use something that, you know, like language, for example, yeah. might have the capacity when we're born as babies to speak Chinese. But if we aren't learning about the Chinese language, those whatever those those abilities to tell differences between sounds start to dissipate dissipate right yeah but if we start tuning and tuning those positive experiences in our life it honestly does change our brain and then changes our lived experience of feeling like we can live more presently in this moment who we are as our best self yeah and people have said to me i didn't think that was possible yeah. But now I know it is, but it doesn't necessarily happen overnight. No. So no. And if you listen, I want to make sure we tell people about the iChill app, that we have an, an app, um, I've mentioned it on the program before, that has all the skills it tells about the model in a very simple way. And you can download it for free today. It's in English, Spanish, and Ukrainian. And people can learn how to do this on their own. I think it's also good to remember, and that's why we have two different models, that some of us may need more help. We could learn these wellness skills and learn about the neuroscience, but sometimes we need to be held um, in the presence of a trained psychotherapist who can help lead us through these kinds of biological-based models. And in the book, we talk about the trauma resiliency model, but I think it's really important for people to know there's sensory motor psychotherapy, there's somatic experiencing, there's other um, therapists that are schooled in what sometimes they call them somatic-based models, we call them biological-based models. But I think we are all cousins because yeah. we help people with the sensations in their body connected to their traumatic experience to also be able to release it so that they can be more in the present moment. And maybe that could be something you can help us understand, Mike. What is the difference between um, the trauma resiliency model and the community resiliency model in terms of the neuroscience that you bring forward in chapter five? Um, sure. I think that when you think about the, the trauma resiliency model, think of it as nine skills, the, the, the first six of which are the wellness skills. And so when we teach trauma, uh, the trauma resiliency model, we emphasize the wellness skills as the first six, and we spend a lot of time working on those first six skills. And so when I introduce this model to my clients, I spend a lot of time working on those first six wellness skills so that they can sense well. I, I want to be able to know that they can sense wellness in their nervous system before potentially going into some of the other skills, the other three skills that have to deal more directly with the distress that they're experiencing or the, 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 this, the distressing sensations that they often experience. And so oftentimes um, the, the way I, I, I frame it is the wellness skills for me provide a, uh, uh, an anchor point or a tether by which we can go out and and then explore the distress in a way that that doesn't uh, create an environment where we might get swept away into that sorrow, into that pain, into that um, distress. We can still come back to our wellness, regulate, and then go back in. And so, to me, that's the what we know about telling our story and, and living on that distress is the more we tell our story and feel that distress, the more we, we um, it gets ingrained in our nervous system. 
But the more we can come back to our resilience and tap into our resilience and then go back in neuroscience, uh, from a neuroscience perspective, we're laying new neural pathways of wellness that enables us to address uh, from our wellness uh, the distress that we're experiencing. I don't so know it's, if that's like rewiring our brain. It's rewiring the brain. Right. So it's actually doing something physiological. And I think many people will know that if they've been to a, a talk therapist, and certainly it's not that, that, uh, somatic or biological therapists don't talk. Of course they talk, right. but you can have great insight regarding what happened to you, but that doesn't necessarily change those, those reminders, those multi-sensory reminders that some people call triggers when we are experiencing um, a, a, a memory of something that was very traumatic that happened to us. Yeah. So, Mike, I really want to thank you for coming on the show today. And, you know, we really could touch into some of the neuroscience. And I know that in chapter five of Building Resilience to Trauma, there is a lot about all aspects of the neuroscience yeah. that people can do a little deeper dive. And so, Michael, do you have anything in, in your kind of last moments, any parting words you would like to say to our audience today? Uh, I'll read a quote from the book. I love this. From it, it, we actually quote Casalino uh, in his uh, neuroscience of psychotherapy says, from the perspective of neuroscience, psychotherapists are in the brain rebuilding business. And I think that's it, as I think we try to use what we know about the neuroscience of resilience to help rewire the brain so that it's working on all cylinders. It's working in the way it, it, it should and, and in the way it will lead to a more rich and abundant life, in, in my opinion. Well, and I think that's what we are aiming for, isn't it? Yeah. One of our missions is to help people, number one, know that they're not broken. Yeah. Number two, that even if things, difficult things have happened to them, that there are things that they can do very concretely to build on their well-being. And, you know, people often say, well, what if you have something like schizophrenia or something that we know is something that has happened to your brain? It doesn't mean that, it means that if you do have that diagnosis, you can still learn wellness skills to help you stay within your zone of well-being as much as possible. You also may need medications to help you do that. But I think that these can be adjunct skills. It's kind of like you have a, a good backpack visible backpack on your uh, uh, that you can pull out a skill at any time and to remember the concepts and our good friend you know as we end today uh, Nobuko Hattori she was taking the model to Japan and she actually said oh Elaine I've, I've put all the wellness skills in the palm of the hand yeah. first saw it in Japanese but you know I think that that's our six skills we can say these six skills are in the palm of our hand that we can use at any time and so remember um are my dear audience, that you can go to the iChill app. You can download it for free. If you don't have a smartphone, you can go to iChillapp.com and you can remember what else is true. And like Mike said, the elegant design that we're designed that way. So my dear friend, Dr. Michael Sapp, thank you so much for being here. Very welcome. Thank you for having me. Yes. And, and my listeners, we will see you next Monday at one o'clock Pacific time. And we will hear another amazing resilient story um, from one of my guests who um, is, uh, is uh, I'm gonna just even actually wait to say anything more about it because I want you to come and listen to her because she's pretty amazing. So until we meet again, this is Elaine Miller-Karras signing off for Resiliency Within. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within, with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.